Morning, everyone. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Phil. Um, uh, I'm married to Kirsty, and we have three uh, mostly wonderful children. Um, and most importantly, uh, I drive trains for a living. Um, this is my first proper sermon. Um, and to be totally honest with you, I am really rather nervous. Um, I've never been a massive fan of public speaking. Um, and when Caleb asked me to do this, I said no. Uh, well, no, okay, I, di I didn't say no, I thought no. Um, but you know, sometimes we get these moments in life when we have to say yes, even when we want to say no. Um, so let's hope it was worth it. Um, anyway, let's begin uh, by praying. Um, Father, as I speak, may you speak, uh, and may Jesus be glorified. Amen. Um, so we've reached the end of our series on the Lord's Prayer, um, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, we've heard about God as our Father from John, um, the holiness of God from Caleb. Jenny preached on the kingdom here on earth. Ben challenged us on God's, you know, being about God's will for our life, not our own. Pippa shared um, about Jesus being the bread of life. Um, Caleb talked on the wonder of God's forgiveness and the challenge to forgive others. And Joe taught us about God disciplining sinners, disarming Satan, and delivering saints. It has certainly been challenging at times, um, but I'd say that teaching should always be challenging and teaching us. Great teaching on God's word changes us. Um, Tim Keller describes it as sanctification on the spot. So here we are. I'm left with the last part. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Um, Joe O'Neill said to me in jest, if I do a good job today, next time I'll be allowed to preach from the Bible. Um, <laughs> which obviously leads us to the elephant in the room. Um, this is a part of the Lord's Prayer you are not likely to find in your Bible. Um, the reason for this is that it is not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. But that doesn't mean it's not rooted in biblical tradition. It certainly doesn't say anything questionable. Personally, I think it is a wonderful way to conclude the Lord's Prayer even if there are questions about whether it is original or not. And if the church has felt it important enough to leave it in our Lord's Prayer, then I suspect it has something important to say to us. So what is it? And what does it tell us here and now? Well, for starters, it's called a doxology. Uh, Alistair Begg describes a doxology as an ascription of praise and adoration to God. Um, the Collins Dictionary not quite as a biblically sound as Alistair Begg, but still good, um, describes it as a hymn, verse, or form of words in Christian liturgy, glorifying God. There are various doxologies throughout the Bible, um, and we're going to have a look at a few of them. Um, Ephesians 3, uh, 20 to 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is in, at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Revelation 7, 11 to 12 says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then in a doxology that closely mirrors our ending of the Lord's Prayer, David in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory 
and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art, thou art exalted as head above all. Sometimes you can't beat the wonderful language in the King James Version. <clears throat> anyway, a good starting point for us is what does our, this doxology actually say? Firstly, we shouldn't ignore the conjunction for. Um, it links the preceding prayer with praise. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Having made the requests in the preceding verses, we can move on to praising God because we know he can answer prayer as he is sovereign over all things. Two, that he does answer our prayers as we see both through our own lives and throughout scripture. And three, he's worthy of praise regardless. It then goes on to tell us that the kingdom, the power, and the glory belong to God. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail on what each of those things mean, because you could easily write a book on each of them. Um, But what is important is that it stresses that they are God's. What I love about this doxology is is how it brings us back to God. The Lord's Prayer starts focused on him, and it is right and fitting that we end focused on him. After all, it is all about him, which brings me to my kind of first main point, um, which I've titled, We Must Give Up Control. It's kind of like an anti-Brexit slogan. Um, <laughs> can we give up control and accept that the kingdom, the power, and the glory belong to God, not us? Praising God brings us to a healthy place of perspective, namely the realization that God is sovereign. It is about him, not us. The kingdom is his. The power is his. The glory is his. This is not an easy message in our society, which is you know, somewhat egocentric, where we place ourselves at the center of every story. We long for it to be about us, and I would particularly say my generation find it a real struggle when we turn out to not be as important as we think we are. We can be guilty of this when it comes to our spiritual lives as well. You see it when we take verses out of context and apply them directly to our own lives. We take a verse like Jeremiah 29, verse 11, adorning many diaries, mugs, posters, some of which in my own home, um, which is written to the exiles in Babylon, specifically about their return to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. While there is no problem in learning of the nature of God from verses like this, applying an unrealistic expectation to our own lives based on them only ends in disappointment when things don't turn out as we expect. The mistake is believing that the story is all about us. But it isn't. It's about God. It's about his story, well, it is his story about his glorious majesty and grace and his plan for the salvation of the world. In the end, it comes back to control. It's it's been about control going right back to the Garden of Eden. We want to put ourselves in God's place. We want control. We love control. We want to control everything. Our kids, our wives, our friends, ourselves. We struggle with lack of control. Just look at the self-help books, the life coaches, the celebrity fitness people, sometimes even the sermons, promising to give us back control. I say that this desire for control isn't biblical. The Christian lifestyle is one of giving up control and having God be sovereign in our lives. We cease to be enslaved by our own plans for our lives and by our sinful desires. Instead, we are now slaves to Christ. Romans 6, to 23 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
We have been purchased with the blood of Christ and our lives are God's. In our fallen state, we are wretched sinners who desire the glory that rightfully belongs to God. But despite this fact, despite the fact that we are completely undeserving, God sent Jesus so that we might know him and live. John 3.16 so famously says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's amazing grace means that when he calls us, we can have that eternal life if we put our trust in Jesus. And it is utterly undeserved. Our salvation is entirely because of God and his plan. And for this we should praise him. In all of us is that sinful temptation to try and regain some control and take some of the credit. And we must guard against this and remember that we are saved by grace alone. This is a party we bring nothing to. In fact, it's a party where it's pretty offensive to try and bring something to it. Fixing our eyes on our Lord and Saviour and giving up control is our calling. Prayers such as this doxology are powerful. We tell God and at the same time remind ourselves of these powerful truths. We need to hear them and profess them because they aren't natural to us in our sinful state. God is at the centre, not us. And what response should this elicit in us? A lack of control can make us anxious. Suffering can make us doubt. We fear not being in control. But actually, it can bring us real freedom when we realise it is not about us and what we can do, but instead it is about what he has done, is doing, and will do. This wonderful truth, which is beautifully espoused in this doxology, should lead us to a place of faith and trust. As it says in Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. God's plan is perfect and good. He is for us. He loves us in a way that is beyond our very comprehension. But his plan is often very different from how we want to do it. We simply do not know what is best for us. Our sinful nature is self-serving and broken. We must remember that it is his kingdom, and it is a kingdom unlike any other. You have to look at the Pharisees who were waiting for a king who fitted their plan, who would defeat the Romans and restore the Jewish nation. Instead, God, God sent his son as a helpless baby to save mankind. The two couldn't be much further apart. When we put our, our desires and plans onto God, it just doesn't work. Romans 11.34 tells us, For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? <clears throat> our response to God's work in our lives should be praise and obedience, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. To be honest, in my experience, most of the times God has been working in my life, it has generally been pretty uncomfortable. Um, Praising God through a doxology is, a wonderful, is wonderful for giving us a sense of perspective and helps avoid having a self-centred outlook. So moving on to my second kind of main point, is praising God a key part of your life? I know personally this really challenged me. I'm very good at presenting a long list of requests to God, especially when I find myself not in control or facing difficulties or you know, troubled times. On occasions, I also actually remember to thank him for the blessings in my life and the countless times he has answered my prayers. But how often do I simply praise him for who he is? The legend J.I. Packer gives a really good analogy when he describes prayer and praise as being like each wing of a bird. The two work in tandem, which enables the bird to fly. With a wing out of action, the bird simply cannot fly as intended and remains stuck on the ground. 
Similarly, Christians should not remain praiseless and stuck at ground level. We know that God doesn't need our praise. He is complete and wholly satisfied in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he does want us to praise him. When we go to him in prayer, we owe it to him to give him praise. Charles Spurgeon says, A sense of justice ought to make us praise the Lord. It is the least we can do, and in some senses, it is the most we can do, in return for the multiplied benefits which he bestows upon us. The indescribable majesty, glory, and goodness of God leaves us compelled to praise him. We were created to worship and praise God. In Luke 37, as Dan mentioned last week, Jesus says that if the people stop praising God, the very stones would cry out and praise. And it stands to reason, if we are created to be worshipping beings, if we are not giving God the glory and the praise, then we will be giving our praise and worship to something else. This is another huge challenge for me, and I'm sure many of us listening today. Is he the sole object of our praise and worship? I know from my own life how easy it is for other things to end up as the object of our praise and worship. These can be perfectly good things in their own right. Our jobs, our money, our wives and husbands, our children, sport, television. It can be a pretty inexhaustive list, to be honest. But if they take the wrong position in our life, then they become an idol. And the Bible has a lot to say about idols, and not much of it is comfortable reading. The following quote from John Piper is a powerful challenge to reflect on. He says, We make a God out of whatever we find the most joy in. So find your joy in God and be done with all idolatry. And in his Institutes, John Calvin says, For what is idolatry if not this? To worship the gifts in place of the giver himself. It might be healthy to take some time to consider what the potential idols are in your life. Definitely not an easy thing to do. But it can bring incredible freedom as we realize that we are falling short and can approach him in repentance thanks to his freely given grace. And it is in him and in him alone that we find true satisfaction. However much we may seek after all these other things, none of them will satisfy our inner longing. When we pray this doxology, we are telling God that he is sovereign, he is glorious in all that he does, and that we are committing to worship him for everything that he is, both now and forever. It moves us from petition back to praise and adoration and realigns our focus on him, not ourselves. And if if we are created to praise God and are going to spend eternity praising him, then I don't think it's a bad idea to crack on with it now. Praise and worship is also not related to where we are at or what we are experiencing. God is always worthy of praise. What I like about the doxology is it turns back to God in praise before we know the answers to the requests about leading us not into temptation and delivering us from evil and giving us our daily bread. Our praise is based on who he is and not whether our requests have been granted. It has been said that God always answers prayers. It's just that the answer can be yes, no, or not yet. As stated earlier, we should praise him at all times while our faith stands firm in the knowledge that he can and does answer our prayers. The last year has been really challenging for all of us. Loss of freedoms for everyone, sickness for many, loss and death for some. But what has been your response to the pandemic? Has it led you to praise God all the more? These are certainly questions that make me feel uncomfortable when I ask them of myself. 
We are called to praise God whatever our circumstances. The Bible is full of people praising in the most midst of the most awful situations. We don't understand why we experience trials and troubles in the way that we often do. But Jesus is clear when he tells us in John 16:33, "In this world you will have trouble, but fear not, for I have overcome the world." But we have that great encouragement that James tells us in chapter 1, verse 12 of his book. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Nothing in our suffering makes God any less worthy of our praise. There is a challenge for us to be like Paul and Silas in Acts 16. In chains and suffering, their praise and worship of God was a powerful witness which led to the salvation of others. Now, there's there's quite quite a few challenges in all of that. Um... But challenge isn't a bad thing as long as it's balanced by knowledge of the grace of God. Those most famous verses from the incredible joy that is Romans 8 say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus calls us as we are. He knows everything about us, especially the awful bits. And he doesn't view us with disgust, but instead, He sees us with love and compassion. He walked this earth. He faced temptation, sorrow, pain and suffering. He understands. And he calls us to come to him. But how then do we respond to the questions and challenges we've heard today? Well, on a practical level, I'd say a great starting point is to start incorporating praise into your quiet times with God. Not just worship songs, though these can be great but spending time verbally giving him praise and giving him glory for who he is and what he has done. And also spending time in silence focusing on God and the magnificence of who he is. Personally, I have found that nothing is better for my relationship with God than to be still and to shift my focus away from myself and all the worries and the baggage and instead focus on him and his immeasurable goodness and glory. And if you want some homework on praising God, I'd go away and read Psalm 145. I think it pretty much nails the praising God bit. You can also go to him and ask for help. Ask him to show you the areas of your life where you are clinging on to control. Ask him to identify any of the idols in your life, though, like me, you may well find that deep down you already know what these are. When we go to him in humility and repentance, we are changed ever more into his likeness. If we are intentional and set out to fix our eyes on Jesus, give him control of our lives and make him the focus of our praise and worship, then we won't go far wrong. And as we've reached the end of this series on the Lord's Prayer, I'd say it's the perfect time to reflect on the place of prayer both in our personal lives and our lives as a church. Be honest with yourself about your prayer life. Are you thriving, spending regular time with God each day in prayer? Are you growing in your knowledge of him through this and through his word? Or is it a real struggle and a battle? Have your quiet times gone out the window? Have you reached a place of apathy? Once you've reflected, take it to God and be honest with him. Which isn't always something we find easy, but it is comforting to know that he's totally aware of it already anyway. Um, Ask him to change your heart towards prayer. Cry out to him about it. Ask him for the ability to be more disciplined. And have grace for yourself when it doesn't go as planned. Remember the lack of condemnation. Personally, I know how difficult all this can be, but I do.
do also know, when I look back with hindsight, about how life-changing and transforming it is to be regularly in communion with him through prayer. Prayer changes us. We are sanctified as we reach out to him. And as he calls us, we should follow Jesus' example. Jesus prayed, like he seriously prayed, a lot. The Gospels are full of either direct quotations of his prayers or references to him praying. He prayed at his baptism when raising Lazarus from the dead, at Gethsemane, at the transfiguration, at the cr- on the cross, before his ascension. On many occasions, he withdrew to pray, often going up mountains to pray all night. He clearly took prayer pretty seriously, and we should too. It's an unbelievably, incredibly, incredible privilege to be able to approach the creator of the universe. He wants to be in close relationship with us. He loves us unconditionally, and prayer is direct communion with him. This is my challenge would be, let's be a people who are passionate about prayer. And finally, as we consider how our verse today ends, now and forever, as well as giving him the glory now, we can look forward to the end of time when we are stood before the throne of God. In the presence of his glory, we will be unable to contain our praise and worship for him. And we will finally be able to complete, completely fulfill the purpose for which we were created. Revelation 5, 11 to 13 gives us a wonderful picture of this. And I think it's a great way to finish today. It says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.